Do you remember when Amazon.com was nothing more than an upstart online bookstore? And when grunge music, bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden, put Seattle on a musical map? Maybe the surprising designs of Paul Allen's music experience, the EMP, or the implosion of the kingdom. All of these events occurred in Seattle in the 1990s, which for some of us seemed like yesterday, and for others, you might not even have been born yet. Regardless of your time here, I'm sure you will enjoy today's stroll with us down a mayoral memory lane as we explore how the Seattle of today, a place of global, cultural, and economic preeminence, is rooted in recent memory. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you're listening to EK on the Go. Whether you recently arrived to Seattle or have lived here for decades, you'll find this episode fascinating. Today, we will recollect conversations, conflicts, and decisions of the last decade of the 20th century through the eyes of the man who was our elected leader of the time. We welcome Seattle's 49th mayor, Norm Rice, who presided over the city during its first tech boom of the 1990s. Norm has a vast resume in public service, having chaired the Enterprise Community Partners, the United Way, along with your remarkable and dynamic wife, Constance Rice. <laughs> I um, married well. You married incredibly <laughs> well. He served as a distinguished practitioner at the Daniel J. Evans School of Public Affairs at the UW and has been on many boards of nonprofits, the United Way, the Fifth Avenue Theater, Northwest African American Museum, YWCA, to name a few. Today, we're going to discover how a new framework for civic engagement seeded the revitalization of Seattle, including South Lake Union, and reversed economic decline in Seattle's downtown core. Whether the global powerhouse that Seattle has become was inevitable or the result of conscious planning and decision. Whether the opportunities and challenges we face today as a city, such as managing population growth, the integration into the globalized world economy, traffic congestion, hopelessness, the redevelopment of the waterfront, regional light rail, you name it, whether these were predictable from the vantage point of the 1990s or whether these things could not have been easily predicted. And what we, the residents of Seattle today, can learn about ourselves and our city through the eyes of someone who helped design this place. So fasten your seatbelts as we uncover a big chunk of the city's transformation packed in one short but dynamic hour. And we also have news to share of a fun and relevant event with you at the end of the show, so stick around. On the way to the studio, I was driving through South Lake Union, where Google just announced this morning that they're committing to another 300,000 square feet of office space on the shores of Lake Union. And I started thinking about what Seattle looked like 20 years ago. I had just come back from Chicago, where I was in school, and I was thinking about the old buildings of South Lake Union, 13 Coins Restaurant, all the old houses in like the Cascade District, right. and know that you were very much a force behind a lot of the changes that we see today. You served two four-year terms as mayor from 1989 to 1997, and then you were on city council for like a decade. So so I'm just curious how your career of civic engagement started. Where did you begin? Actually, the engagement had nothing to do with growth as much as it had to do with the conflict that was going on in the city over busing. There was an initiative to repeal busing of kids in the city, and I wasn't for that initiative. I thought it was divisive, and I thought we could do better. So I came out against the initiative saying we could do better and trying to rally people to move around it. Irony of ironies, I won the election. For mayor and was the, that like a pivotal issue? Oh yes, election? it was. Yeah, and the initiative passed to repeal us. So go figure. I jokingly say people got to vote their hopes and their fears in the same vote at the same time. And so our job was then, if this happened, what do you do? And my goal was, how do you bring a divided community over busing, schools, education together to frame a direction of where they need to go? And I called for an education summit to bring the citizens and those who are engaged and interested in education to come together and redefine where we need to go. That happened after your election. Right. And then what was the outcome of the summit? Essentially, what we did is after we had the conversations and all, and after you realized that the city didn't have any control over the schools, we came up with the idea that what could the city do? And the city, we decided, could make every child safe, 
healthy, and ready to learn, and that we would use the resources of the city to allow that to happen. That kind of tempered down the anger and rhetoric overbusing, and we began to think about how you could make positive investments in the school district and for our children to make things work. And that positive attitude, I th- started to lay the foundation for my work as mayor along a lot of issues, the education issue, the growth management issues that we were confronting, and uh, welfare to work, and those kinds of things. So how do you create successful collaborations around divisive issues to come to a positive outcome? That's incredibly poignant today. I don't know about you, but the city feels, you know, does it feel more divided, less divided? Obviously, maybe the lines of demarcation are different. Yeah, it's changed. The demographics have changed drastically from where I was to where we are today. But I think the biggest thing is there still is a lot of fear, a lot of concerns, and a lot of anger. Homelessness, how do we approach it? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Oh, you people don't understand. So how do you get to a place where you can have a civil, civic discussion about the right challenges and the right way to go? And the biggest thing in retrospect is that you got to leave your baggage outside the room and come back and say, okay, first, I can understand where you're coming from. Secondly, now that I understand, where can we go together? Mm-hmm. And it's really, in some ways, that simple, but simple is not always easy, as you know. No, and civility is a key word right now on a national level, on, on every level. There's sort of a gap. Well, my old saying is some people would rather you hear their complaints than solve their problems, but you have to hear their complaints in order to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Even though you sometimes think you're a charismatic leader and you can walk in a room and sway the public, until you can explain what you want to do in their words, based on their aspirations, their concerns, you can't move. So whenever you are in a confrontive, dynamic kind of element, you've got to come back and say, you said these things. Here's how I would approach him. And then you ask for verification and ratification. And if not, then what do I need to do to make it better? And the more you get people involved in making it better or giving you that input, they start to own the process. And then it becomes theirs, not the mayor's, not the council's, not anybody else. It's a long process, though. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people want quick solutions. And nowadays, there's no quick solutions for the complex problems that we face in our society. Are problems more complex now than they were 20 years ago or just different? I think more different. When I came to Seattle, it was the last person leaving Seattle to turn out the lights. Mm -hmm. Boeing was going in a downturn. There were a lot of vacant houses and other kinds of things that were going on where people had left. Neighborhoods were deteriorating. The investment in those kinds of things were not going well. So how do you make people feel better about where they are and what they're doing? And so it was really how do you galvanize the community to start to plan for the best things that they could see that could be for those communities. So it seems like you've talked about a civic framework for kind of civic engagement. And part of it is your listening, who you are, how you show up, you know, as the mayor at the time. But then it has to be a shared vision because there's many different stakeholders. So how did you layer that framework for conversation engagement in a community sense? Essentially, the template that we use was we called for a gathering of people to talk about the issues and not to go in with how do we solve it, but what's bothering you most to get a real understanding 
understanding of the depth of what's happening and the breadth of what's happening. Putting that together and then coming back, asking for validation. Is this what you said? Do I understand what you're saying? If I do understand and this is what you say, then you ask them, can you help me? Because there is no simple answer to any problem. It really is one of how do we build this together? It's built around trust. It's built around people's ability to see that you heard what they said. And then it's ability to have a process that keeps coming back to them saying, here's where we are today. Are we still headed in the right direction? Because right today and most of everything we do, we want a simple solution and we want to solve it, have it done and say, okay, now let's go to the next one. Well, when it comes to growth, when it comes to education, when it comes to fairness and other kinds of things, those are not issues that you solve. It's really issues that you try to keep building. And so in our administration, we had lots of town hall meetings, Mm -hmm. walking tours in in neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. getting that feedback. It sounded like in front of Red is it was a very open platform for discussion to help shape it collectively. And you got to remember that I was shaped also by the fact that I had lost several elections. I'd run for Congress. I'd run for mayor and lost. So I had a different attitude when I first was running for higher office. And when I jumped in the race successfully, it was back to a listening process. So, a different attitude meaning like one of humility that comes from having had <laughs> challenging electoral politics? To some degree of humility, but then really the ability to listen. So often Uh candidates get consultants and other people to kind of shape the message, to shape what you're doing. But have you really heard? So the real issue is how do you create a mechanism that gives people feedback quickly about what you're doing? And then how do you get verification that you're still moving down that line in the right way? And then show them that you might change what you started out to do because you heard them. That's the hard part. And some people kind of think that's Seattle process. So that seems long and boring. And everybody in today's, you know, time frame for media and messages, they think you ought to be able to do this in a short time. But it really is being out there all the time, letting people know that you're there all the time mm-hmm. rather than just for a month long process. And then you walk away. And I appreciate the, your emphasis on, on complexity, that a complex system is organic and can't be solved or even created. It just exists and That's it has true. kind of a life of its own. What was the system, the framework for civic engagement like before you took office as opposed to the one that you kind of helped build? You're helping me. I'm writing a book. So maybe if I answer this, I'll finish that book. So the way it was before is you, you had a, a public meeting. Let's talk about zoning in our neighborhood. Everybody shows up to the meeting. Some people say, we want this building or we want this kind of zoning. Other people say, no. They get their feelings out and you walk away and a plan comes out. Is it what they said? And rarely do you bring it back to people to say, here's where I'm going. Am I getting it right? The real issue is not so much to have a public hearing and then say, okay, I'll I'll build a plan. It's really to come back and say, I'm starting down this road. Am I thinking about the right things? And if I am, will you tell me where I'm wrong? And start to build that way. When people know that you heard them, they really make a difference in in their engagement, in their involvement. You know, I always say some people would rather you hear their complaints and solve their problem. Uh-huh. My wife tells me that every day. <laughs> <laughs> but once you get the complaint out, you know what you need to do too uh-huh. <laughs> with, with your wife or anything sure, else sure. Or, or with your child. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. But if you yeah. are so dominating and strident in the way that you think something should be, you may be missing the point. Can you walk me through an example? You mentioned busing and, you know, is there another example from the, from 1990 to 1995 that is poignant? Well, I do think the notion of urban villages. Although that's changed, the older I get, the less it seems so innovative. 
But how do you get the community to engage about building a communities? How do you think about what is a community? What are the investments that you need to make? How do you make those investments? And getting people to talk about what they like, getting to see what do most people like in their community. You'd like to walk in the community mm-hmm. you live in. You'd like to have parks that you can play in. You like to feel the sense of a community, a village, even if you're in a major metropolitan area. And then can you find the right investments that ought to be made to create that village? We had the urban villages. We thought about how we could get bond issues and other things to build parks, to build recreation centers, to build the kinds of things that complement the sense of community. So I've always taken urban villages for granted, but obviously they came about at a particular time. So what triggered the... Well, remember the two things that triggered, just like with busing, and, and there's always a theme there. The city was faced with having to pass a growth management plan and to have it approved by the state into the growth management plan. And, you know, the way some people looked at it, large growth, medium growth, small growth, like a template that you would do. Well, we kind of looked at it and said, wait a minute, (laughs) we could try to do that, but let's go out and say, what do you value about your community? What would make your community? If we were moving down this line, what would you want to make sure are the right investments that ought to be made so that even if there's more density and more growth that you're going to have, you feel like you're still part of a village. So what are those things? Parks, trails, amenities that need to be made so that you still feel like you're in a village. In our previous episode, we reminisced about how no one used to live downtown or very few people. It was fairly uninhabited. Um, I even remember that as a child. It was a place you would go to the Seattle Center, but it wasn't really right. a place where people live. You live downtown. What are your memories of downtown before you took office? And what are, from your perspective, the changes, especially for living there? Well, one of the things is having coming to this taping, thinking back, it makes me kind of smile to myself. There were a lot of different changes. You know, people were moving out of the city. The city had passed a mandatory busing program, which made a lot of people move out of the city because mm-hmm. they didn't like busing. Mm-hmm. So you were seeing an abandonment of people and things being vested in the city, and you were feeling like you were losing the feeling that you needed. So how do you bring that back? You have to think about, well, downtown, the Westlake development, trying to bring back commerce and other kinds of things in the city so that people have a focal point of where they're going to go to see that there is a commitment to make it stronger rather than abandoned. You know, when stores were closing and other things were going on, if you're downtown, it looks like it's failing. Mm. Your city's failing. It's a perception. It's a perception, but it's a real one. Uh, Sure. so you want to maintain that vibrancy. So how did you personally deal with that? If there's a sense of resignation because of this outflow of population, just on a personal level, it must have been challenging. Here's the principles that I kind of operate with, and I think that's what kind of guided me is if I want to help someone who's in need or someone who's struggling, where am I going to get the revenues to pay for it? Well, if you don't have a vibrant economic engine in your city, how are you going to pay for it? We don't have an income tax. We use a sales tax or a business occupation tax. Well, you can't just tax a business unless you show business you're helping them. You can't bring new businesses in unless you're making some incentives to do it. So it's that collaboration. So if I want to pay for education, if I want to pay for training and other kinds of things that are so important to people, I've got to be as eager to look at the vibrancy of a city and the revenues that come from that city to make that happen. That's how it's going to get paid for. Exactly. This head tax that Amazon opposed, that was a highly divisive issue. 
you had all different union members <laughs> opposing city council, some in favor, some opposed. So, I mean, obviously there was identification of a problem, which is homelessness. There was a solution proposed, but it did not pan out politically. With your vision, how might the issue be addressed in a way that would have pr- created a solution rather than just divisiveness? I'm still troubling with that. That's why I'm smiling to myself about how would I have done that? I don't know. I, I think the problem is, is that, you know, Lester Thoreau, the economist had the old saying, whose income are you going to cut to reward the people who put you in office? Uh-huh. And there's a large number of people who feel that corporations and other people are not those people, so therefore they can tax those people. But those people hire people. Those people have employees. Those people have a whole synergy of kinds of things. So it isn't that simple. But the real thing is, is that if you're going to do this, you've got to show where the tax is going and how it's going to build what you want, not just taxing it. And then you've got to take in consideration, is there a downside to that tax that makes a company or somebody else move? They don't have to stay here, so it isn't really so simple as to just say, well, tax them because they, they're going to move. It isn't like a big industrial plant that can't quite move. No, especially now. People, Nowadays, companies you, move quickly, right, right. Boeing. So yeah. you've got to be real careful okay. about it. So I think the biggest thing I think is is, is important, which takes a lot of legwork and like, you've got to get those people who are leaders sitting down and talking about it and really beginning to say, are there investments that you can make? Are there things that you could be engaged in? Are there other things that you can do? Because I think when we finished up with the urban villages and the comprehensive plan, when people started looking at Westlake and other kinds of things and what we're going to do, it was easy for me to say, look, these guys helped me (laughs) bring revenues to pay for these things. Why can't we help them? Well, especially now, a lot of these companies are highly creative, innovative. They're innovating the entire world in terms of technology and so forth. It would seem to me that they're a great resource to tap into, not just their money, but getting their kind of moral commitment. The biggest challenge today in my mind is that the new employee is more mobile and is not looking at a half-acre home on a plot of land in the same way that we used to. So the sense of neighborhoods and village change and how to balance density versus amenities how to make sure that you are really giving people choices and where to live rather than one type of living. And those are complex, but that's the challenge that you have to have. And it it isn't so much that you'll have the best solution in the world, but if you understand that and can talk to people on their terms about what those challenges are, they're willing to listen to you about what your challenges are and maybe help you. So that's a really interesting thought. In my day job as a real estate broker, I work with people looking to buy a home, but they may be here for three years or five years. They're going to be Snapchat. will be moving them to the Bay Area or whatever. Right. They have no predictability and they don't see it as a bad thing, actually. They figure, what well, Facebook may be out of business in two years. I'll yeah. be at Microsoft or whatever. And this is not really a fair question to you. You sort of- help It isn't. Cre- <laughs> well, you help create the environment that of all this amazing yeah. economic boom, but would you sort of envision engaging people like that that have choices and will be flowing in and out of the city in a, in a civic discourse right. over what kind of the city should look like? I think you just said it in your own way. You've got to figure out a forum where that kind of discussion can go on where you can show that you've heard them and then come up with solutions. I, I believe in civic engagement. And the civic engagement, I believe, is is not necessarily that you define the problem, but you gather the concerns. And once you get those concerns laid out, you don't say, okay, I'm going to walk away and now I'll give you an answer. You say, wait a minute, you've got five concerns. I don't have an answer. Will you help me find a solution? That's, that's a, the challenge. That's a great vision for today because all of these people, the people in the city are brilliant at solving problems. So, yeah, it's more connecting and, to the and, civic problems. And and it's so hard for some people 
for time, make a commitment to be engaged for a long time to a process that may be taking, you know, 90 days or even a year. We want instant gratification. Yeah, nine minutes is even long. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you create a process where people feel like they can be engaged? I think what you do, though, when you do that, you've got to think about how do you create small victories? Are there some investments that can help people in real time today mm-hmm. that shows you're committed to moving where you need to go? Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait for 15 playgrounds and three libraries to be built in your community so that then people can say, oh, well, now you get it. What you do is you say, we'd like those things. Would you help me figure that out? Would you be on the planning committee? Will mm-hmm. you so you try to get that engagement. I think the biggest challenge now, and I'm, I'm, you're making me think about this even more, is that people's time, people's commitment is very short. And so people want something short in real time, and they want it solved in real time. And if it takes longer, they get very frustrated. And you've got to figure out a mechanism of how you can show that you're listening to them all along and that you're moving. And so it isn't like you have a public hearing you say, okay, I'll be back in two months and I'll tell no. you that won't work. <laughs> no. You've got to say, okay, I had a public hearing. You say you want to do this. Can you help me? And I know that sounds too simplistic, but once you reach out a hand and say, will you help me? Then that's a different way than saying, I'll be back in, in 90 days and I'll give you an idea of what yep. you said. Mm-hmm. That will always work. Mm-hmm. Invariably, you'll probably bring the wrong thing back. Okay. So you've got to create checkpoints and places where you can get verification of what you're doing. Shifting gears a little bit, toward the beginning of every show, I always ask our guests to consider a place in Seattle that is meaningful to them or that matters. Is there anything that comes to mind? Wow. The house that you sold. Well, I, it was an amazing <laughs> Where we place. lived. It yeah. was a wonderful Tell place. us about that, yeah, because I was talking <laughs> I, about that with my wife, just all the I remember, things that happened. I remember there. the day that we were looking for homes and the realtor was taking us around a million different places. Our son was with us, and we were trying to think of where to go. And we drove up to our home, and I always remember the first thing. We'd seen it before. We thought it was too expensive. For our listeners, where was that? That was in Mount Baker. Mm -hmm. And we drove up to the place, and our son ran up the stairs and to the room that we said it was his. So we looked at each other and said, I guess we got a house. (laughs) (laughs) But it had the kinds of things that I like about a neighborhood. It was was park-like. It was uh, lots of trees. Didn't sit on a large acre of things. It was embedded into a kind of a Olmstead designed In Coleman Park. Coleman Park, yeah. So you had the amenity of the park without having, (laughs) I didn't have to mow the lawn that much because the park was the lot. So it had those kinds of things. It still took a little ways to walk to places, so we still drove a little more than we would have. But there were little knolls of neighborhood and commercial that you could use that you didn't have to just wait and go to the shopping center or the the big mall or anything like that. So it it kept that sense of community. And then can you share, like, a lot of amazing things happened there and a lot of amazing guests visited and... Oh, (laughs) well, needless to say, being a mayor of a city, the house had a lot of history, a lot of people. Quincy Jones, right? Yeah, Quincy Jones. You don't even, I don't even think about all the kinds of things that happened, you know, and the people we entertained, Mm -hmm. but it was a place where people felt comfortable. I think no matter where you live and what you have, it isn't about a big mansion and a big hall. It's opening up your arms and reaching out and telling people all is well and you can come in. And people have always felt that they could always come to our place, be comfortable about Mm -hmm. how they were and what Mm -hmm. they were doing. 
I want to roll back time a little bit. Your own personal transformation is fascinating as well. Originally, I mean, you were not planning a political career. I, mean, I know we talked recently about the fact that you studied communications and even had a stint on radio on Como. I wrote news for Como. I always had to be clear. I never got on air, unfortunately, okay. for Como. And then I, before that, I was a news reporter for KIXI Radio. Can you walk us through the transformation from broadcast journalism and politics? Because they well, seem different but related. I think that I always was interested in politics and interested in, in making things happen. And I liked the idea of being in touch with news and covering those kinds of things. But I also knew that there was something else I wanted to do, but like to work on problems, to look at problems and the way to go. So I had a lucky situation. A National Urban League got a grant to assess the performance of the media as it relates to minorities and equity and moving up. And the Seattle Urban League got that grant too. And I came in and said, you know, I think I'm the guy who could help you with this report since I'm a reporter, since I work. And so I got a job at the Urban League to kind of do that assessment. And during that process, it would help immensely. I was able to get the confidence of television stations, the Urban League, I should say, to allow us to look at their records, talk about the things. So I had to build up a trust process yep. with the media. I concentrated more on electronic media than print. And by then I started creating a trust relationship, a place to go. Now, the ultimate goal of my thesis was to create public access with cable and the like and create a great public access channel that people would use and get that didn't work. <laughs> so, but I do think that the idea of engagement, the idea of using media more than just an entertainment tool, but a communications tool is still important, especially in today's society where people are getting information faster and quicker and don't want to read as much as they used. Another thing that came up when we were talking earlier was, you know, I had the sense that by working in journalism, you got access to people that you otherwise wouldn't have been so easy to talk with. That's true. The other sense was that this was more of an old boys network, that it was not the meritocracy, whatever extent Seattle is a meritocracy, where, you know, I think that part of our economic boom is that yeah. we've attracted diverse businesses yeah. and so forth, but the political system was not open. No. And I think one of the things about being a, a reporter and a journalist of sorts, they want to get on the air. <laughs> so the doors are open to you because they want to get their message on your tape to go on air. So it gives you access in a way that you wouldn't have on any other things. Because a lot of times, if you're an activist, you still have to beat on the door and work your way in. If you're a reporter, people are going to let you in. Uh -huh. And you've already established, Once I always say, once somebody opens up the door and lets you in, you have a different relationship than if you're banging on the door and you can't get in. So by then, and then what you write, how you listen to them, how you try to be as fair as you can be, where you aren't trying to exploit someone, but really to learn from someone, really helps. But what happened for me is as I started getting that access and getting, I realized I didn't want to be a reporter. I jokingly told somebody, I'd like to know, but I didn't like to tell. So therefore, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> I want to be informed. I want people to be informed. But I didn't necessarily believe that I wanted to be on air, although I do believe if you're on air, you make more money than you were a reporter. So I started yeah. moving into public service. And as I moved into public service, I found that that was a better niche for me to kind of do all the things I was we wanted to do. What was the first step transitioning into public service? Well, I worked for the Urban League, and then I worked uh, writing that report, and then I became deputy Urban League director. And then I also got an opportunity to work for a regional planning agency 
newcomers are flowing in for all the great educational, medical, business opportunities. And many have lived here have, I think, bittersweet feelings about the changes. They see parts of Seattle disappearing, changing very quickly, sometimes almost overnight. You yes. could drive by and a church that was there is suddenly gone and, you know, it's a, now a construction site. One of the major concerns is housing affordability is declining and there's displacement and homelessness. During your term as mayor, you established the Partnership for Homeless People and chaired a committee to help plan for the redevelopment of Yesler Terrace, which was a big public housing project. Project. Yes, it was. I'm curious what the questions at that time or the problems at that time that were addressed through those initiatives and that project relative to what we're experiencing today. Boy, in retrospect, it was a very big effort and we had to pause it occasionally and reassess where we were to go. I think anytime you're thinking about redevelopment or investing in something new that's going to deal with density and moving on, how do you get the people that you want to build it for? owning it and is involved in what you're doing as you yourself do. Planners have a tendency to say, well, this is going to be good for you, so therefore you should like it. Well, if this project doesn't reflect your values, reflect what you want to have, it's going to really make a difference. With Gessler Terrace, our first meetings were not very good. The committee was suspicious. This is something you're going to do to us. This is something that is going to happen to me. This is something that's going to take away from what I, I'm used to. Not necessarily that you like, but that you're used to. So how can you make that reflect what people want? And what we did is we had to have long meetings. <laughs> we used to have lunches and dinners and other kinds of things where people talked with each other in a different effort. Remember, Yesler Terrace, there, I think there may have been 12 different languages. Yeah. So the trust effort and the ability to do it is really a lot. So you have to get out and walk and talk to people. It's almost like, I hate to say it because it sounds so old-fashioned, even though electronic media and communications is so good, sometimes talking over the fence and walking down the street is going to bring more confidence than a tape or recording or videotape or anything. So it took a long time to build that trust. And what you have to do when you're doing that is you've got to create opportunities where you're bringing back the plan, not in its completion, but as you move along for people to respond. Because the more that you can get people to see what you're doing, respond with what you're doing, the more they're going to own it. And if they own it, then I'll never forget the day that we passed the plan for Yeshua Terrace one of the leading elders said, we like this plan because it has social equity, economic opportunity, environmental stewardship, all the words we said. <laughs> <laughs> but it was their, their terms. Okay. And they, so they got it. We got it. And we felt really good about it. But it took a long time. So just to bring this alive for me, can you give me like an example of a specific adjustment that occurred in the design that was reflective of input from those neighborhood stakeholders? Well, it wasn't so much that anything specific, but how were the units being built? you got to remember where yesterday it looked like a lot of duplexes mm -hmm. put together. So if you're going to go up high or you're going to go into more density, how do you make people feel that this is still that neighborhood? How do they see where those things are? So rec rooms, daycare, other kinds of things that support them have to be seen and a part of it so that when they see it, it's theirs. Do you um, believe that a lot of Seattle is disappearing? I don't know if I can answer that because the times have changed. You know, I mean, when I came to Seattle, like I said, remember Seattle was more of a Boeing town where people were working in the factory, you know, coming in and out, different kinds of jobs. Technology has taken over where people can work in different hours, different times. Yep. So it's totally different. But the, the thing is to recognize what the times are and try to build tools that still meet those things. 
I think the biggest thing now is how do we use, and you know, my background is broadcast journalism back in the old days. How do you use the new technology to communicate with the community so that they can see that they're engaged and they can give you feedback in real time so that you can make the change? Was historic preservation of buildings an issue, like a hot button issue in the 90s, like it is today? Boy, as soon as I say no, it was. I think it's a factor. When you really think about the sense of a community and what you have, maintaining the historical sense of what a city is is important. What that is, I can't answer it. But I do think, though, that if you don't cherish institutions and places that you have, you lose something in that process. During your time in office, Seattle was named the, like the best city in business by Forbes magazine and the nation's second most livable city by Rand McNally and so forth. And today we face big challenges regarding livability, right, as a function of our growth. And the business sector has brought remarkable population growth. Every month, mm-hmm. there's hundreds, if not thousands of people moving in. So were the trends that you were dealing with while mayor very different from those in other cities or very similar? And to what extent did you get input from other mayors that was helpful? To answer one, they're all similar in cities. Cities are dealing with growth. Seattle's growth and challenges are different because we have an hourglass shape with two bodies of water on each side so you can't sprawl or move forward. You've got to manage it. The real thing is they probably have to grow. There are going to have to be strategic decisions about where things, you can't have everything, Seattle, but you ought to be thinking about how do people get to the new places and are there transportation corridors and other things that can allow people to have that mobility to get to the places you want? This is why I probably highly believe in light rail, making sure that people can get on the rail and go to the other places rather than have to drive. Uh, so those are investments that need to be made. We have a light rail, incipient light rail system, right? It goes to <laughs> Northgate and the airport, Engle Lake. That is a big project that probably took many years, no doubt, to plan. What was the conversation around light rail in the 90s? I'm getting so old, I'm forgetting about the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I think it still was a challenge. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing with light rail is where's the line going to be? And how quickly can you be to the line to get on it? Further you're away, the less you have any desire to to pay for it or do anything. So the real thing is how do you get connections and what are the kinds of modes of transportation you have to get to the light rail? Yeah. Because with the Puget Sound's hourglass shape, you don't have many east-west kinds of roads. Like Chicago. And other places. Yeah. So yeah. it's a different kind of transportation challenge. And our light rail stations are kind of orphans. I went to a Mariners game a few weeks ago and we live near the university district, but boy, it was getting to the, we drove to the light rail station, you know, it's two miles away. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, other cities where the light rail is, but first the whole cities get developed around these nodes. Yeah. Whereas we're backfilling at Mount Baker station and so forth. There's not a lot of housing immediately around there. That's true. Your book, which we're excited to see when it gets finished, is, you know, who will the audience be, do you think, for that, or who will be able to really use it? I'm doing it with great difficulty. (laughs) I had a hard time, and I'm still having a little bit of time writing this book, because what is it that you want to get? How do you create the environment for successful collaborations around critical issues? And what are those principles that you think are so important to really make? So what is it trying to show a template that could work in any time. So how do you define the problem? How do you get people to validate that that is the problem? Then how do you get people to help you solve the problem? And then how do you create places for them to come and critique what you're doing and moving along? A lot of people used to say Norm Rice has a lot of process. But I do think that if you want the community to own it, you've got to figure out ways to get them engaged 
on a regular basis in a real way and create a mechanism for communications that shows that what you're doing reflects what they said they wanted you to do. And I don't mean that you're knee-jerking it. It's just civic engagement is a communications tool, too, that if people come to a meeting and they all say they're upset about density, they're upset about construction and noise and other things, then you better well show how you're handling that. So you don't say, oh, this is just progress, so just bear with it. You have to show people how you're going to manage it. And manage it is sometimes so simple as we'll be out there in your neighborhood on a regular basis talking to you about what's Mm -hmm. going on. I said this earlier and I'll say it again. I just remember one day a lady came up to me and said, you know something, I don't like a lot of what you did, but I always know you listen to us. There's not a silver bullet for the solutions to urban change in life, but there is a silver bullet about how you communicate and the honesty and genuineness of what you're saying and what you do. When you became CEO of the Seattle Foundation, it was 2009, you said that your emphasis was to reach out to younger generations through social networking and online tools to give them kind of real-time information and get them engaged. And it's been a theme here, but the speed of communication and the demand for immediate information, increased engagement among younger people or decreased it? I can't answer that totally, you know, because I'm not as engaged as I used to be. I think the idea is not to get so fixated on the mechanisms but really to get fixated on how do you deliver that message and recognize that there are multiple places to do that. Probably today you need to communicate through more channels than before. And so therefore one person can't do it. And the communications tool of getting that information to people so that they can use it is really important in real time. And the more you can do it in real time, the better the trust will be. Are there communities now who you believe need to be listened to more firmly than others? or that are not being heard generationally. Yeah. I mean, one thing is this divide between the old timers and the new residents. I kind of would turn it a little bit. The medium that you're going to use has changed, and people have to understand that you have to communicate in a different way. I mean, when I was a reporter for a radio station, I wrote news for a television station. That isn't necessarily the major, oh, God forbid, I won't say that. That's not the major means for people getting information. So you got to understand what are the new tools And how can you access those tools for better communications? That's, I think, the biggest challenge for the communicator is to recognize that there's a different world who receives things in a different way, and you've got to be dynamic and nimble to get that message out. One size doesn't fit all. Everybody's hopes and dreams are important. And to really develop a communications tool that shows that you heard what they said, not that you're doing what they're saying, so that you can come back to a community and say to them, here's how I'm going to handle that. And I think that's where trust is. Trust isn't about that you do what I want you to do. It's as much as, did you hear what I want and how are you doing it? And if you could say, I heard you and here's what I'm doing, you've probably built a strong trust relationship. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing in my mind is communications. And how do you communicate to the public what you're doing? And how do you give them real-time opportunities to give you feedback rather than feeling that you just go into, uh, you have a public hearing and then you plan it and you say, here it is. You've got to get the community and those with various interests to be engaged in the process and making sure that they're engaged to want to go forward, not stop. The responsibility of the citizen to play his or her role in the changes you have is also still important. And the city can't do it all. 
So there has to be a sense of everybody owning what's happening and having pride in it so that they kind of can monitor and manage some of those things themselves. For the next episode, we'll explore the 90s and today by diving more deeply into the Seattle Commons Project. Our guides will be Atlas Obscura Society, Seattle field agent Christopher Blado, and Weston Brinkley of Street Sounds Ecology. Many of you might also be interested in catching a walking tour that Chris and Weston are offering to explore an alternate history and future of the Seattle through the Commons Project. You can go to our website to find out how you can participate, join the tour. Until then, enjoy the remarkable summer weather. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please follow EK on the go on soundcloud.com forward slash EK group and share our podcast far and wide. For those of you who stay tuned until now, we have a small announcement to make. We are very excited to share with you that starting in September, our podcast will be available on iTunes and Google Play as well. If you'd like to be notified once it's up and running, just visit ekreg.com forward slash podcast and click on sign me up. Send your questions or requests to edwardk at ekreg.com as well. And if there's a place in Seattle that matters most to you, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Norm, for joining us today. Join us next time to hear from others like Norm Rice about the places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you.